Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. I don't know what prayer God's stirring up in your heart this morning. I don't know if it's a prayer just saying, God, I, I just want to love you more. I don't know if it's a prayer of God just breaking through in your family and bringing blessing that only he can bring. Maybe your heart's still aching for people on the other side of the world that families getting ripped apart and living in turmoil. I don't know what the prayer in your heart is this morning, but God knows it and he's put it there. I want us this morning to actually, wherever we are, and there's a lot of people online this morning, whether you're in your lounge room or whether you're here in this room, uh, I want us to actually finish in a prayer meeting. Uh, I want us to come together as a church family, gathered and scattered, to cry out to God together, to believe that those prayers that he's put in our heart are there because he, he wants to pour out power. He wants to release something from the throne room of heaven as we cry out to him in prayer. Hey, as we uh, today, I want to talk about a uh, cool guy named Jehoshaphat. Cool guy, cool name. I wanted to call our son Jehoshaphat. Susan wasn't so keen. She says the next dog we get, you can call him Jehoshaphat. The last dog we had was called Max. It was kind of a whole lot easier to say and to spell. I think I've, uh, I've typed Jehoshaphat into my computer about 100 times this week, and I've got it wrong every single time. So I'm going to call him Jfat, because he's a pretty cool guy. I reckon he would have been a rapper in his, uh, in his day. But before I talk about Jfat, I, uh, I want to talk about his dad, Asa. Much easier name to say. Actually sounds like a laptop or a superannuation company, but uh, much, much, much simpler name. Uh, Asa was Japhat's dad, and he was the king of Judah. And this is what I want us to understand. It's what the scriptures want us to understand. He was a good king. He was a good guy. He, he loved God, and he loved his people. He followed God's law, and he worked hard for the good of the people that he served. But compared to the surrounding nations, he had a puny army. It says they were brave, but they were outnumbered. And so when a mighty army, you know, rose up, you know, from the south against Asa's puny army, there's nothing he could do except get on his knees and just cry out to God for a miracle. And he did. This is what it says, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. It says, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we've come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. And Asa never had to lift a finger. God heard that prayer God poured out power, and that mighty army was defeated by the power of God. 
And they were so defeated that uh, Asa's army carried off all their loot, all their sheep and cattle, all their silver and gold. And they became very wealthy. They became very comfortable. And it says for the next 25 years that the, the, the people of Judah were at peace. But 25 years later, they had gotten very comfortable. And this time, another mighty army rose up, you know, against the people of, of Judah. And this time, they were so comfortable in their surroundings that Asa took some of the cash and instead of crying out to God for a miracle, he cut a deal with an evil king. And the evil king, you know, came along, they joined armies together and they actually won the war. There was bloodshed, there was people, you know, lost lives. It was awful. But they actually did win the battle. But this evil king became a pain in the backside for Asa for the rest of his days and they knew no peace for the rest of their days. In 2 Chronicles 16, it says this, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord, your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. This is my favorite verse of this season at the moment. Verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord reign throughout the earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to Him, fully devoted to Him, fully surrendered to Him. It's a good word. Take hold. If you're going to remember one verse in this season, remember that verse. He says you've done a foolish thing because you didn't keep your heart fully committed to me. And now you're going to be at war. And he was. Good king. Love God. Follow God's law. Worked hard for the good of others. Yet he became so comfortable in his surroundings and confident in what he could do himself. That he didn't trust God. Jehoshaphat comes along. He's Asa's son. He's a lot like Asa. He's a good guy. He loved God, followed God's law, worked hard for the good of people. But like Asa, his army was fairly puny compared to the surrounding nations, but he was a good leader. And under his leadership, they became very comfortable. They were very wealthy people. Mighty army comes against Jehoshaphat. And what does he do? He's so comfortable in his surroundings. He's so confident in himself. He cuts a deal with an evil king and there's bloodshed, there's pain, it's awful. The evil king dies and right at the last minute Jehoshaphat cries out to God in prayer and God saves him. Fast forward a few more years, once again, mighty army comes against Jehoshaphat, this time. He learns from his dad's mistake and he learns from his prior mistake. And this is the prayer he prays. It's a great prayer. Second Chronicles chapter 20. He says, Jehoshaphat, resolve to inquire of the Lord. 
And he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. The Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard. And he said this, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. They've lived in it and they've built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to come before God. We're going to stand in His presence, cry out to Him for breakthrough. Stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and you will save us. But now hear a man from Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You see, there's a pattern. If you actually read 2 Chronicles chapter 14 to 20, it tells the story of Jehoshaphat's reign and Asa's reign. And if you read it in the Hebrew, there's four headings for each of their reigns, and they're the same. What God's wanting to do as He pieces together His Word is to show us a pattern. A pattern of being humble before God and hungry for the presence of God, and God, you know, pouring out His power and bringing breakthrough, and then good people. Good people who love God getting so comfortable in their surroundings, so confident in themselves that they actually stop trusting God and they suffer the consequences. You see, you can listen to these stories and go, what's it got to do with me? I I don't lead an army. I don't have an army coming to attack me. But as we look through the history of Israel, we see this same pattern. As we look through the history of the church, we see this same pattern. And when I look in the mirror, I see this same pattern. You know, times where God gets a hold of my heart and I just know that God, I can't do this on my own. God, you are the great God of heaven. And God, I'm completely dependent on you. And I see God, you know, pour out His miraculous power. And then other times when I get so comfortable in my surroundings and so confident in myself, I don't trust God. I don't cry out to God. And I suffer the consequences. And I believe God has put this pattern so clearly in these six chapters of the Bible because he doesn't want us to follow the same pattern. Because when I look around this room today, I see good people. 
People that love God. People that want to follow God's law. People that work hard for the good of others. But just like when I look in the mirror, I see people that can get so comfortable in our surroundings and confident in ourselves that we don't come humbly before God and hunger for the presence of God. But what we see in this story and many other stories in Scripture, prayer that brings a powerful move of God comes from humility before God. You see, humility was not a virtue in ancient culture. But Jehoshaphat humbles himself before God. He gets down in his royal robes and he cries out to God and says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And God moves in power. You you might know the rest of the story. I'm not going to read it all today, but you might know the rest of the story. You know, God speaks as they cry out to him in humility and they actually go out onto the battlefield and sing praises to God. They actually do not lift a finger in war, but they lift their voices in worship. They drop drop all of their weapons and they pick up instruments and they begin to worship God. They begin to declare the praises of God and God brings a miracle, you know, sets an ambush against this invading army and brings victory, an impossible victory to Jehoshaphat and his people because they humbled themselves and they prayed. They humbled themselves before God and said, God, we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you. I remember being in a prayer meeting on the other side of that wall here at McKenzie in our function room. It was about 12 years ago. It was one of the most defining moments of my life, but it was also one of the most humbling moments of my life. I was about to get up off the front row onto the stage to lead us in the prayer meeting. I really just wanted to stay on my seat, but I couldn't stay on the seat. I just felt the weight of my sin come upon me. It burdened me how much I'd begun leading my life and leading the church out of my own power, my own wisdom, my own ability. And I started to feel, you know, God's just sadness, his sorrow for what I was doing. And I actually found myself down on my knees, just crying my eyes out, just just humbly before God, just repenting of my sin. Before I know it, I couldn't even stay on, on my knees. I'm laying flat on the ground, just crying out to God. People are looking around going, what is this guy on about? And I remember getting up onto the stage when I could and just confessing my sins before our church. Just declaring, I don't want to live like this anymore. God, I just knew God had something better for me. One of the most humbling experiences of my life. It was like my whole life was just an open book before the church. But you know, in that place of humility, God did not make me feel small. 
It was in that moment as I humbled myself before God, I could feel him put a new joy in my heart. I could, put, I, I could feel him just fill me with power and draw me into a new intimacy. I could, I could feel him start to give me a, a, a better picture for how to do life and leadership. He actually lifted me up. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You know, when he talks about prayer in Luke chapter 18, he, he tells a story of a, of a guy who stands there on the corner and he lifts his hands to heaven and he declares his own self-righteousness. He declares all of the good things that make him right with God. He declares how confident he is in himself. And then the other guy in the story He's a tax collector, a sinner. Everyone knows he's a sinner. And he gets down in the dirt on his knees and says, Lord, will you have mercy on me, a sinner? And Jesus says, which one went home right with God? And everybody knew it was the one on his knees in the dirt. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus says these words. And these are still true. I've, I've experienced this in my own life. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, we've got a choice. We, we can either exalt ourselves and we will get humbled. We can actually choose to humble ourselves before God and say, I do not know what to do, but God, my eyes are on you. And he lifts us up. I tell you, it was the most humbling experience of my life. But one of the most powerful blessings I've ever received is a defining moment in my life. Right through scripture, God says this, Isaiah 66. What do I desire? The ones I look on with favor are those who have a humble and a contrite heart. You want to know the blessing of God. You want to see the power of God poured out. You want to see the favor of God in your life, in your family, on our church. It's a humble heart where we say, God, I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. See, prayer that brings a powerful move of God comes from a humility before God. We're called to stay humble, not to go through this pattern of being humble, seeing the blessing of God, then getting so comfortable in those blessings and so confident in ourselves that over time we lose humility. You know, the disciples asked Jesus, you know, how do we become the greatest? <laughs> how do we get to, you know, get the great place of greatest blessing and power in the kingdom? And Jesus got this incredible answer that just floored them. It was not what they were expecting. It's not what they were expecting. It's not what they were hoping for. He says this, truly I tell you, unless you change... And become like little children. The word is technon. It kind of means toddler for us today. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to understand a technon had no rights, no status, no power in this culture. 
Unless you become like a little technon, a little child, a toddler, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You actually want to know the greatness of God's blessing, the greatness of God's power, the greatness of God's favor in your life? Humble yourself. Powerful moves of God come from prayer that begins with humility before God. The problem is as we get older, we start to get less and less dependent and more and more confident in ourselves. When I was born, this is what I looked like when I was born. I wasn't very good looking then and I'm still not now, but uh, I looked a little bit cuter back then. Completely dependent on my parents. All I was capable of was drinking, belching, sleeping and filling a nappy. Apparently, I did them all with, uh, I excelled in all of them. When I became a toddler or a technon, I actually learned to walk, talk, eat, and toilet myself. But I was still dependent on my parents to provide, to protect, and to decide for me because I couldn't make good decisions for myself. In grade three, I became a little bit more independent again. I was ducks of grade three. Yeah, that's impressive. That deserved a clap. You know, I was ducks. I was joint ducks. I was joint ducks of grade three with Justine, and I did that test without my parents' help. But Justine was sitting next to me. She may have helped me a little bit. But I, I was now becoming more independent. I'd walk home from school on my own in grade three, but I needed my parents' money to buy a can of Coke and a Violet Crumble Bar. I think it cost a dollar, 50 cents each. Good days. Grade eight, I now had a paper run, I had a little bit of my own money. I could buy my own Coke, I could buy my own Violet Crumble bar and had a bike where I could just terrorise the neighbourhood and I could get to places. My mum wasn't so keen on me becoming more independent, so she followed me to school the first time I rode my bike to school just to make sure I followed all the road rules. Grade 11, I no longer had to ride my bike, I had a car. I was becoming more and more independent of my parents, but I wasn't completely independent because I had no money to put petrol in it and I had to siphon it out of my dad's car or steal his mower tin to get from place to place. You can get a long way in a Toyota Corolla with five litres of two-stroke in, uh, in your car. Now I got my own car, I got my own house, I got my own petrol even, I got my own money. And I got the next second generation of little technons in my life. This is my granddaughter, Aurelia. She doesn't have a big vocabulary. She just says, dumper, swim. Apparently, I look like a dumper, and she loves to swim. Not a big vocabulary. And when we jump in that pool, She's completely dependent on me. She can't swim without me. Reaches out for me, holds on to me. Jesus says, you want to know greatness in the kingdom of heaven? I want you to be a little technon. You don't need a big vocabulary to pray and to see an outpouring of God. She doesn't have a big vocabulary. 
But you do need to stay in this place of humility and dependence. And the problem is many of us follow this same pattern of Asa and Jehoshaphat. We get comfortable and we get confident. And he's calling us to stay humble. You see, the church in our nation, and you know, I play uh, a role that I love in the church in our state and, 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 this, and leading this church here, but we've, we're more organized than the church has ever been in this nation. We've got more websites, more programs, more ways to communicate, more strategic plans than ever before. And we should. We need those things if we're going to lead growing churches that reach people in our communities and reach more and more people. We should have all of those things. But one of the problems is we can get so confident in what we do ourselves and so comfortable in our surroundings, whether you're online in the comfort of your own home or in this comfortable building today, which is semi-dry. We can get so confident and comfortable that we actually don't need God. But doing better in this next generation, what we already do well, will not bring revival in this nation. We need an outpouring of God's Spirit in this nation. And it comes as we get on our knees humbly before Him and we call out to Him in prayer. In Jehoshaphat's prayer, he, he points back to the promise that God had made when the temple was opened, you know, by, by King Solomon. He says, God, you said, you said if we face plague or danger or war or famine, that we would come and we would stand in your presence in the temple that bears your name. And we would cry out to you in our distress and you would move from heaven. You would use your power to save us. So God, here I am. I'm crying out to you. I'm asking for you to come and heal our land. Second Chronicles 7, when that temple was opened, God said, if my people who are called by my name will, say it with me, will, come on, say it again, will, will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. And I will heal that broken land. I tell you, we need healing in this nation. There's too many young people looking for meaning in the wrong place in self-destructive ways and wrecking their lives. There's too many old people dying of loneliness. There's too many families getting ripped apart. And there is this pain everywhere we turn. God, we need you to heal this land. Powerful moves of God come from a humility before God. You know, as a church, we don't want to go through Asa and Jehoshaphat's pattern. We want to be a people in every season that are hungry for the presence of God. That's our value. Our value as a church 
is we hunger for the presence of God. We seek the life-giving presence of God in prayer and worship in every season. We want it to be the thing that we are marked by. See, prayer that brings a powerful move of God, you know, comes from a humility before God and it begins with a hunger for his presence. You know, we hunger for what we love. I love pizza. I'd happily eat three of them right now. I'm hungry for them. I love them. I love Turkish delight. Happily eat a whole bag right now. I'm always hungry for them. Never been hungry for Brussels sprouts. Never in my life have I thought, oh, geez, I could go some Brussels sprouts right now. I don't care what you cook them in, they taste like lawn clippings. They're disgusting. You see, we hunger for what we love. I believe God is calling us to delight in his presence. Delight in him. Whether it's sitting reflectively, just listening to beautiful music play, whether it's looking at creation, just seeing the wonder of God all around us, whether it's just a regular, you know, playlist of worship you've got in your car and in your home. I tell you, this is not a season for Sunday worshippers. This is a season where God's calling us to delight in his presence, that our ministry for the Lord will flow out of our ministry to the Lord. He's calling us to delight in him with all of our heart. As we hunger for the presence of God, two really important words. Firstly, delight. How are you delighting in God in Monday to Saturday? What are you doing just to delight in his presence? So when you come here on a Sunday, you're just pouring out just a, 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 all of the good things that you've de- declared about him already during the week. You've so much to give thanks for. Delight and discipline. You see, there's a discipline that God's called his people to, to hunger after him throughout all of history, Old Testament, New Testament, right throughout the church. There's a discipline of fasting. There's a discipline of actually putting aside some of the things we normally delight in, some of the things that we normally find comfort in, some of the things we normally find joy in, to see our hunger for God grow to become more sensitive to the Spirit of God, to put, a, put aside some physical desires to become more attuned spiritually. Right throughout history, here in Second Chronicles chapter 20, when they're faced with, with this impossible situation, what does King Jehoshaphat do? He calls a fast for the whole nation. And from the youngest to the oldest, they all fast before God and they cry out to God together, God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God moved in power. And it's happened throughout history. 1756, the king of Britain called for the commonwealth to fast because there was an invasion coming from France. And the nation fasted. This is what John Wesley wrote in 1756. He says, The fast was a glorious day such as London has scarce seen since the Restoration. 
Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer, and there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility. And it goes on to say, humility was turned into national rejoicing for the threatened invasion by French, by the French was averted. You know, the royal family have actually lost the power of prayer and fasting. Imagine today, Will and Kate on the front page of the Women's Weekly, right next to the winter warmer recipes, saying, hey, it's time to fast and pray for the people of Ukraine. It's hard to picture. Sadly, it's not just the royal family that's lost the power of prayer and fasting. By and large, the church in the West have lost the power, have lost faith in the power of prayer and fasting. And I believe God's waking up his church. Our nation needs to see God break through to bring healing and hope that's got nothing to do with our human ability and capacity. There are too many young people living without hope. There's too many people never heard the name of Jesus. There's too many people heading to a Christless eternity. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure there is a more apt description of the culture of our day. There's no resurrection. What we believe doesn't really matter. What, as long as you believe what you believe and it makes you feel good, that's great. But if there's nothing, there's no certainty after this life, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But as a church, we've got a different value. We've got a value that says... There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to know God. There's only one way to have real hope for all of eternity because there is a resurrection. We're a church that hungers for the presence of God. We seek the life-giving presence of God in prayer and worship because we all need something more satisfying than food. We need something that feeds our soul, not just our stomach. There's nothing that you can ingest that will satisfy your soul. There's only someone that you can receive that will fulfill that eternal hunger that's in your heart. He describes himself as the bread of life. He says, I'm like living water. His name is Jesus, and he died on a cross to reconcile us back into relationship with God, to forgive our sins, to pay the price. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and said, I want to give you new life now. I want you to enter into it now. I want you to know my healing and hope now. And you'll actually, if you, if you come with me, You'll move through death and into eternity and know my presence for all eternity. There'll never be any more tears, no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. Our nation needs Jesus today. And the local church is the carrier of that message. 
and the carrier of the ministry of Jesus. Prayer and fasting has changed the course of nations in the past. It's happened before. It can happen again. Acts chapter 13 is a local church just like us. And it says, while they were fasting and praying, God said, set apart Barnabas and Saul to the ministry to which I have called them. And so they fasted and they prayed and they laid hands on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were sent to share the gospel and to plant churches throughout the known world. You need to understand at this point in time, in Acts chapter 13, Jesus had said, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But Acts chapter 13 is 18 years later, and they've gone nowhere. They've done nothing deliberately to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea. They've done nothing deliberately to plant churches. 18 years later, a local church just like us is fasting and praying, and God says, now is the time. Go. And Paul sets off to share the gospel where it's never been shared, to plant churches where there's never been an expression of the body of Christ from this moment of prayer and fasting. A missional movement was sparked so that Christianity, this tiny little sect in Jerusalem, actually became the dominant religion of the whole Roman Empire in the next 250 years. From this moment of prayer and fasting in, in a local church, churches were planted and missionary journeys went throughout the Mediterranean and half of the New Testament was written because this moment happened. They fasted and they prayed Paul was sent out and he kept writing letters of what God was doing and letters of encouragement to churches as he sat in jail. Because of this moment of prayer and fasting and the gospel going and churches getting planted, there's now over a billion followers of Jesus Christ in every nation on planet Earth. And it all got sparked in this moment. This moment as a local church prays and fast, and they cry out to God, and they say, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God says, time to go. Set apart. Saul and Barnabas, the course of history was changed. What would happen if we got so hungry for the presence of God that we got serious about prayer and fasting? What would happen if from the youngest to the oldest, we actually came before God? And said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Do you want to see what might happen? You know, there's 21 days of prayer and fasting. There's three simple things on page one of this book I'd love you to think about. Who are you going to pray with? Find someone to pray with. Keep each other accountable for 21 days. It helps. What are you going to fast? You might be fasting from food totally. It might not be wise for you to do that. You might fast from food partially. You might fast from technology. The point of fasting is to put aside something that you normally delight in, you normally find comfort in, you, you normally find joy in, to actually, for a time, 
find more joy, more comfort, more delight in God. Become more spiritually attuned to what he's saying. Who are you going to pray with? What are you going to fast? And lastly, what are you hungry to see God do? What's that prayer? And it might be, and don't feel guilty about what this is. It might be a prayer for your own family. It might be a prayer for this city. It might be a prayer for the church in this nation. It might be a prayer for the people of Eastern Europe. But just let him stir that prayer in your heart. Each day there's a guide in here that will guide you, you know, through each day, each week, praying for all of those things and more. But what I'd love you to do as you go this morning is to at least make these three things, make these three commitments. I'm going to pray with this person. I'm going to fast from this. This is my big prayer for the next 21 days. Let's stand together this morning. I look around this room. I see good people. I see people who love God. I see people who want to follow God's Word. I see people who work hard for the good of others. But as I look in the mirror and as I look around this room, I also see people who can get so comfortable in our surroundings and so confident in ourselves that we live independently of God. I believe He's stirring up a prayer in our hearts in this season. I believe this 21 days might just be, you know, one of those defining moments in your life. I talked about one of mine about 11 or 12 years ago. This might be one of yours. You could look back on this 21 days and say, that was a defining moment in my relationship with God. So I humbled myself before God and I hungered after the presence of God. I saw God break through in a way I didn't know was possible. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click Get Connected to let us know.